Well, good morning. If the uh, lack of hair has not yet clued you in, I am not Kevin. My name is Matt. Uh, my family and I have been attending here at Lamb for about a year now. And my, in my day job, I work as an attorney. I write wills, do that kind of thing, not the uh, really exciting court work that some others do. I do some other things too, and I'm here to speak to you this morning. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. About six weeks ago, we came into this space and we confessed our sins together and we received ashes and we began our Lenten journey together. And now we've come in here on Palm Sunday and we've arrived at Holy Week. We've arrived at the climax of Lent. And we're about to enter in to this, this week where Jesus gave his life for us. The Bible tells us that there also similarly came a time several weeks before the incidents that we read about in the gospel readings this morning, when Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. In other words, he began a journey to Jerusalem that took several weeks and, you know, to accomplish, and he did things on the way. And then today, in the passage that we read that when we were outside, we read about Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. As we have arrived here at the climax of our Lenten journey, Jesus arrived today in Jerusalem. And there is a narrative about what happened on this day in Jesus's life and then on what happened in the days following. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that this is a coronation narrative. Now that may sound odd to you. We know a little bit about what coronations look like. In fact, we're about to see just next month a, a really you know, kind of big modern coronation, right? His Majesty King Charles III is going to be crowned King of the United Kingdom in London. And this is a coronation narrative. Uh, it's going to climax on Thursday or Friday afternoon when the king is enthroned, when he's wearing a crown on his head when there's a sign above him that says, this is the king of the Jews, that's a proclamation. When he has attendance on his right hand and his left hand in the very spots the disciples had just asked to occupy. When he's got a crowd of, of spectators around him watching him. And when he becomes king, not through a military victory, but through the sacrifice of his own life. So what we read outside is the beginning of this coronation narrative. And I want to take a little bit of time and examine that with you this morning because it's unlike any coronation narrative that you can ever imagine. There are ways in which it's similar to a coronation narrative, but there are ways in which it's very, very different. And those differences tell us a lot about who Jesus is and what he was doing and, and why he entered Jerusalem in the way that he did. So let's, uh, let's take a few minutes now and examine this account of what we call the triumphal entry. Now, you know, the preacher proverbially has the three points, right, that he wants you to understand. I'm sorry, I've only got two today. If you feel cheated, you'll have to file a complaint later with the management. But the two things that I want you to think about today, first, the manner of his arrival, and second, the meaning of his arrival. First, the manner of his arrival, and then second, the meaning of his arrival. So let's think about this. Um, there are some things about Jesus' arrival that really are very king-like that we read about in the, in the Matthew chapter 21 passage. Verse 8, it says that the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and cut branches from the palm tree. Now, to us, culturally, that doesn't mean very much, but to them, those were actions that were loaded, 
All right, they were fraught with meaning. When they, they took their cloaks, which probably, we're talking about poor people here, they may well have been the only cloaks that these folks had. They took their cloaks and they spread them out in the middle of the, of the path where they were going to get really muddy and dirty and perhaps even ruined because animals and people are trampling on them. And that was an action that they knew had royal significance in that culture. If you look back in the Old Testament and you read the account in the Old Testament of how a man named Jehu was anointed king of Israel and sent off by God to judge uh, the house of Ahab, which had committed so many sins and rebelled against God, you can see that one of the very first things they did when they anointed Jehu to be king over Israel was the crowd spread out their cloaks on the path and Jehu went out stepping on the cloaks um, and, and went and kind of overthrew the existing king. Right after he was anointed, they did that. And it was because this was one way that they had of acknowledging somebody's royal authority. The other thing they did, according to verse 8, was get palm branches and start, and start waving them around. Again, this, this doesn't mean much to us, but if I told you that they had an American flag and we're, it was, we're waving it around, or some sort of banner with red, white, and blue on it, then you would understand that there was significance to that. And to them, that's what a palm branch was. A palm branch was a symbol of Jewish nationalism, to the point where even many of their coins that they were minting during this time period had palm branches on them. Um, and during the last kind of nationalistic uprising that the nation had experienced before this point, which was, uh, it had happened about 200 years before the events that we're reading about, when the Maccabees revolted against the ruling power, one of the things they did to Judas Maccabees as they welcomed him after his military victory over the foreign power was get palm branches out and wave them as he entered Jerusalem, and then he became a king of sorts to them. So they understood very clearly the symbolism is there. And moreover, it seems like that Jesus uh, allowed this intentionally, right? He has a chance to stop these actions. The Pharisees, right after the passage that we read outside, complained to him. They say, why are you letting the people do this? Tell them to stop. Tell them to all shut up. And Jesus declines to do that. He says if they were quiet, the rocks would, would ring out with praise. So it seems that Jesus is intentionally using these symbols to communicate something. The actions as they enter into those, to the, to the actions are important because it, it, it helps them to physically manifest something that Jesus is trying to say to them, which is, I am the true king. And that's why it's actually important that we go out and wave palm branches around. <laughs> we look a little silly, perhaps, doing it. But the actual physical act of doing it enables us to enter into the narrative in a way that merely sitting and listening to somebody talk about it won't. And it was the same for them. They went out and, and, and engaged in these symbolic actions and entered into the narrative, and it was unmistakable that the point was that Jesus was saying, I'm king. But there were other things that perhaps were not so king-like about this narrative, right? Um, there were things that are perhaps a little more puzzling or um, communicated something slightly different than we would expect from a coronation. And the primary one of those things is that Jesus was riding a donkey. Verse 1 tells us that. Now, we know what a king rides, right? When His Majesty King Charles III rides into London next month to receive the crown, he ain't going to be on a donkey, 
right? He's going to be in a carriage driven by white horses, probably. Can you picture uh, the Lord of the Rings movies? And the last scene of the third movie, right, where Aragorn is, is coming into Minas Tirith and he's going to be crowned as king. Can you picture him on a donkey? No, you can't, right? Because we know that kings don't ride donkeys, but this king does. Well, it's because he's a different kind of king, right? And that's what we read in our New Testament passage that we, we heard up here just a few minutes ago. He's a king who emptied himself and took upon him the form of a, of a servant and was found in fashion as a man. And Matthew understood this emptying, this humility that the king displays as being consistent with what the king had always been prophesied to do, right? And that's in the Zechariah passage that we read, where, where Zechariah prophesied that the king, when he came, would be humble and would be riding this very non-royal kind of animal. But there's a duality there, right? Because, and we see that both in the Philippians passage and in the Zechariah passage. Because in the Philippians passage, the one who empties himself and, and who, who is found in fashion of a man, that one is also the God of the universe. And even Matthew understands it in that way. Do you remember in the Old Testament that the prophet Ezekiel saw a vision of God's spirit leaving the temple? He saw God's spirit, and it, and it had occupied the temple, and there, there came a time when it wasn't going to occupy the temple anymore because the, the people had rebelled against God and acted like they didn't want him there. And, the, and Ezekiel sees this vision of God's spirit arising from the temple and departing from the east. And then later on in his prophetic practice, he sees another vision where God promises that he's going to restore his people. And he, and he sees this vision of the Spirit of God coming back to the temple and reoccupying the temple. And Ezekiel understands that as a sign of God's promise that he would not abandon his people and that one day he would restore his people to a point of fellowship and intimacy with him. And when the Spirit, when the spirit comes back and when it reoccupies the temple, do you know where, where it comes from? Well, Ezekiel writes, it comes from the east and enters the temple through the east gate of Jerusalem. Where did Jesus come from? There were lots of ways to get to Jerusalem. Which way did he pick? Well, the Bible tells us that he came down from Jericho and went up to Bethphage and then proceeded into Jerusalem from the east through the east gate using the very path that Ezekiel had seen God's spirit return to the temple from. All of these things were intentional. Um, he was trying to communicate a message that he was the king, that he was the one who was promised, but at the same time that it wasn't going to look just like whatever all the people thought that it might look like. And that brings us to the second point. The manner of the arrival, we need to think about the meaning of the arrival. Now this is a little hard for us to get our brains around, so I'm going to try to help you here. Uh, we live for better or for worse, in a powerful country. And, and we have not, in our own memories, had the experience of being invaded and occupied by a foreign power. It, the thought is, is crazy to us. We don't know what that feels like. Now, you wonder <laughs> sometimes the way things are going, if we might find it out at some point. But let, let's leave that to one side. We don't have an understanding of that as we sit here. But try to use your imagination for a moment, if you can. Try to imagine that our country was invaded 
and occupied by a foreign power that the presidency and the Congress and all the institutions that form our government had been abolished and that we had to follow the dictates of whatever foreign country had sent its army in and taken over. All right, we would resent that a great deal, I'm sure. Okay, so now imagine this situation and picture for yourself what a 4th of July party is going to look like. Now, you know, 4th of July parties have these kind of historical meetings for us, but they also, you know, have social meetings, right? I mean, you go and you have the hot dogs and you, I don't know, play cornhole or whatever you do on the 4th of July. But, so you might still have a 4th of July party. You might go eat your hot dogs, but can you see how that is going to feel politically fraught? to celebrate American independence at a time when you're under the occupation of a foreign power? Can you see how the foreign power is going to view any Fourth of July party with suspicion, right? Because you're going to be, you know, they're going to wonder, well, are they having this party because they're saying that they want to overthrow us and be independent again? Well, remember that Passover, which was the celebration that was about to occur as Jesus enters Jerusalem on that day, was a celebration in memory of how the Israelites had been freed from being slaves under the dominion of a foreign power. The Egyptians, right? So you can understand how the Romans themselves might feel a little uh, edgy right around Passover time, just like the foreign power here would feel edgy on a, about a Fourth of July party. All right, so now take that situation and picture your 4th of July party under the dominion of this foreign power and somebody who's known for being somewhat opposed to the occupation comes into your party and he comes in not just, uh, you know, by walking in, by, but by parading in with a whole bunch of people flying American flags. And as they're parading in, There's a band there that's playing Hail to the Chief. That is fraught, right? That is politically fraught. They maybe haven't actually broken any laws, but the symbolism is unmistakable, and it puts everybody on edge. If you're anxious for the foreign power to be overthrown, you're probably there going, yeah, 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 you know, sing, sing louder. If you're the foreign occupying power, or if you're one of the group of people that's buddies, with the foreign occupying power, you are angry and anxious and wanting to do something to tamp down on this before it gets out of control and causes a bunch of bloodshed. All right, that's the situation when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and they're waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Do you understand now why everybody's anxious? All right, they say Hosanna. They say it repeatedly in the passage if you, if you look at it. That doesn't mean anything to us. What does the word Hosanna mean? Hosanna means, very simply, save us. So as he comes in, they're shouting at him, save us. Well, save us from what? Well, here's the disconnect. All right, here's the tension between what they were expecting and what happened. Because when they said save us, what they meant was save us from the Romans. Do solve what appears to be our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is though that legion of soldiers out there that's not letting us keep the Torah and is not letting us have our own king and is not letting us be independent and is not letting us you know, 
administer God's law in the way that we think it should be administered. And we're looking to you, Jesus, to solve that problem for us. That's what we think the Messiah is going to do. Hosanna, save us. And save us means killing all the Gentiles and restoring a political kingdom. And there's the tension. Because at some point in their history, they had lost the plot. If they had read Zechariah again, they might have had it restored to them, because what does Zechariah say? When Messiah arrives, what is he going to do? Well, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 10, he shall speak peace to the nations. That's the Gentiles, when you see the word nations. Messiah isn't coming to murder them all. He shall speak peace to the nations. And what that means is that when God had always promised that when he did for Israel what he had always promised that he would do for Israel, that the Gentiles would come in also. That his salvation would not merely be a salvation for Israel, but would be a salvation for the whole world. And that's where they lost the plot. Their expectation did not align with the reality of what God was about to do. And when that happened when their expectation did not align with the reality and it occurred to them several days later that it was not going to unfold in the way that they hoped and thought it would unfold, their reaction was to call for the judicial murder of the one who had disappointed them. The same people who said Hosanna were found four to five days later saying, crucify him crucify him. And their problem was that they were trying to treat the symptoms rather than trying to treat the disease. We were in Myrtle Beach over spring break. Um, We had a good time. One thing that I did not expect, though, is that there were a dozen uh, high school athletic teams in Myrtle Beach with us. And they tended to swarm um, various places. Uh, Lots of teenage dudes in the hotel that we were at. And they tended to concentrate, unfortunately, in the two places that I wanted to visit the most, which were the hot tub and the weight room, Um, in that order, by the way. And so there was very little opportunity to get in the hot tub because there were lots of uh, sweaty teenagers in there most of the time. Eddie got in anyway uh, because he's brave. And then uh, a day later, turned up with a fever. Now, I uh, uh, panicked. Uh, Emma says that I have panic attacks. I don't know if that's true or not, but I was very concerned about the fever. I was convinced that he had COVID, and then I looked at him, um, and he had this rash, like red rash everywhere, and I said, oh, good. It's not COVID, and he's got the hot tub gunk, um, which one gets sometimes when one is in a hot tub that is not clean. There was nothing that I could do for poor Eddie. I, I, I gave him Tylenol, Um, because I couldn't treat the actual disease, it had to run its course. His immune system had to clear whatever gunk he had absorbed from that hot tub. It had to clear it out of the system. Um, But I could treat only the symptom. I couldn't treat the disease. I gave him Tylenol, and the fever went down, and he was okay, and in a few days the rash disappeared. And that was the problem that the people had. They wanted to treat the symptom, but Jesus came to treat the disease. Their problem was not the Romans. Their problem was not national division. The problem was not even Herod strutting and pretending to be king of the Jews. No, behind all of those things, there was a deeper and darker problem, and that was the problem of their sin and brokenness and separation from God. 
And Jesus came to treat that. Hosanna, they said, save us. Well, actually, he was going to do that. He was going to answer that prayer. He was going to save them, but not in the way that they thought. What about you? What do you think your biggest problem is? Do you think that all the problems in your life, all the challenges you face would be solved if you had more money or if you had that job that you really want or if you had this, a, a spouse or if you had a different spouse or if your political party, whichever party that is, came into power and could just implement its agenda? Do you think that everything would be okay if that happened? Do you think that you are mistaking the symptoms from the disease when Jesus came to fix the disease. When God says something that you don't understand in the Bible, when he says something that makes you angry, when he says something that you disagree with, when your expectations about the way God is or the way the church is or the way Christianity is are not met, do you react with violence? Do you react with anger? As we enter into this passion narrative, to what extent are you mimicking the role of the crowd? There is a reason in our Maundy Thursday liturgy that we all shout, crucify him, crucify him. My prayer this week is that as we enter into this, that we would um, allow Jesus to mold us and shape us, that we would allow him to solve our most important problem. Now, I am surely out of time, but I'm going to give you one final thought. Think of this as an epilogue. This narrative begins on a Sunday, Palm Sunday, which we understand that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Now, I've actually read a Bible commentator who suggested that this happened on a Monday and not on a Sunday. But even so, the narrative would begin on Sunday with his arrival at Bethphage and the, and the preparations that he made. So the narrative starts on the first day of the week, and it reaches its climax on the sixth day of the week. What other narrative do we know in Scripture that begins on the first day of the week and reaches its climax on the sixth day of the week. Well, it's God's creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And that's intentional when the scripture does things like that. And what the Bible is suggesting to us is that this work that Jesus is, is beginning on this day and then this narrative that extends through Friday is the story of God's recreation of, of the universe. It's the story of his creation of his new kingdom. It's the story of the creation of the church. It's the story in which you're invited to become a part as you enter his kingdom. He is making everything new. But as Zechariah tells us, it involves a sacrifice, right? Do you remember what Zechariah said? As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free because of the blood of my covenant. There's no making new creation, unfortunately, without the shedding of blood. And my prayer for us this week is that as God makes everything new, that we will allow him, as we enter into this Passion Week narrative with him, that we will allow him to remake and reform us so that on the next first day of the week, we can rejoice and celebrate with his triumph 
and uh, with the manifestation of his new creation in his resurrection. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.